You're listening to Chicago Writes, a podcast of the Chicago Writers Association. Now is the time to join Chicago Writers Association. It's open to writers and authors anywhere in the world. Unlock a wealth of writer and author resources, programs, and benefits for just $25 per year by visiting chicagorights.org or click on the link in the notes below. Chicago Writers Association membership, by the way, makes a great gift. One of the benefits to becoming a Chicago Writers Association member is the opportunity to attend Let's Just Write, an uncommon writers conference named one of the best conferences in the U.S. by Writer Magazine two years in a row. This year's sold-out conference took place in March. In case you missed this comprehensive two-day event, we thought we'd bring you a few of the voices and presenters from this year's Let's Just Write conference including Poetry Panel Moderator Christina Rodriguez, Associate Professor of Creative Writing Eric Charles May on Writing Memoirs, to Neil Jackson, Editing is Not an Option, and Author, Poet, and Conference Attendee Leah Grover. Neil Jackson was named one of the 18 most powerful women on the south side of Chicago in 2015. She also was a presenter at the 2022 Chicago Writers Association Let's Just Write two-day event with Editing is Not an Option. As an international award-winning author, Tanil has written relationship books, children's books, books on effective communication, as well as those geared to inspire. She puts all of us to shame for the amount of work that she accomplishes. Tanil is rumored to sleep for exactly one minute every 27 days. Her website is mynameistanil.com. So are, are the rumors true one minute a day? Or one minute every 27 days? I think I got a little bit more, maybe three minutes now. We got three minutes now. <laughs> because, because, I, and, and, and I've said you're, you're like a human hurricane. Uh, you're, you're everywhere and doing everything all at once. Oh my God. You know what? And it doesn't seem like that to me. It seems like I'm moving in slow motion. So I don't see, and I always joke with my husband, I don't see what everybody else sees. So yeah. Well, you're doing something right. You've got 10 kids. I, I have a lot of them. I have four <laughs> biological children, but seven that uh-huh. I raised. So yeah, I, I claim seven kids. Uh-huh. But now that the writers conference has passed and we're adding value to the uh, Chicago Writers Association's podcast, I think this is a perfect opportunity for a bit of a recap, maybe on a couple of the meteor points that you presented in editing is not an option. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I actually, I just woke up this morning and Samantha, who put the, the whole conference together, um, she had actually, as a matter of fact, let me pull it up because it made me blush when I read it. She had talked about, because it was a, a email on what was missed. So I'm trying to figure out if she posted on Facebook or where she posted it. But the bottom line was she had put what her favorite, what one of her, she named me as one of her favorite moments. Um, wow. One of the things that I said. Yeah. So I'm trying to, cause I want to be able to quote it right. Mm-hmm. Um, under So in her blog, in her blog, what you missed, she says, she said, she talks about, and I'm just going to read just the first little portion. She says, 
two of my favorite lines at the conference. Tennille Jackson in her session on editing is called self-publishing because yourself does all the work. It's yourself that does all the work. Yeah, and, and I say that all the time. Like people, they underestimate the power of self-publishing um, mm -hmm. because they think that, oh, well, self-publishing just means that it's free or it's cheap, you know. But no, it's called self-publishing for a reason. Yourself is publishing, yourself is marketing, yourself is promoting. So it, it takes you to make sure that everything gets done. Mm -hmm. You've looked at a lot of manuscripts. You've edited your own manuscripts. Yeah, absolutely. I always say every editor needs an editor, right? So like just because editing may be your job, when you become the writer, you're no longer the editor. Mm -hmm. And so it's very important to understand that now, even if I edit other people, when I'm writing, I'm not approaching this project as an editor. I'm approaching this project as a writer, which means I'm susceptible to making the same mistakes that other writers will make. So maybe it's not the exact same, um, like maybe not the grammatical mistakes, uh, but there are times where even now, you know, I may not necessarily, again, not necessarily punctuation mistakes, but I may do run on sentences or I may forget a word. I thought I inserted the word. And so it is so critical that every editor has an editor. So if you're on a budget, how does one accomplish finding that other editor? Well, one of the things that I even taught on in the conference was the process of interviewing an editor, right? Mm -hmm. So don't feel like just because they came recommended that they're the editor for you. Understand that every editor has specific genres. So not all editors edit everything. Yeah. So don't assume that just because your friend told you that this was their editor, your friend may have done a sci-fi manuscript and yours is self-help. And so those are two different genres. And so the editor with copywriting may be, be able to edit it, but in terms of developmental editing, it may not be the same. And so I definitely say, you know, there, unfortunately, even if you had like a book of editors, a phone book of editors, um, <laughs> it's kind of hard to narrow it down. You literally have to do the work. You contact the editor. Don't be afraid to ask the tough questions, but you have to know the questions to ask. Mm -hmm. So know what your work is is about know when you're asking about you know first of all ask how much do they pay and i said don't ask how much but ask how they pay so do you charge per hour do you charge per word do you charge per page those things are very key because a lot of times writers don't ask up front and so now when they hear the price they feel bamboozled another thing is to know what type of editing services you need don't ask do you edit but ask what kind of services do you provide? Um, because if you ask someone, do they edit? And they tell you, yes, you may actually need a developmental editor, but they're a copy editor. So they didn't lie. You just were not specific. Um, and then in terms of time, make sure that you ask not how long will it take you to edit, but when will I get my manuscript back? So those are some key things that, you know, just knowing which questions to ask will help make the process a lot smoother for both you as the writer as well as the editor. 
Mm -hmm. I heard, I also heard two other suggestions, both from recent this year's and last year's Book of the Year award winners, one for fiction and one for nonfiction. Gary V. Johnson, an attorney, wrote a uh, a very powerful first-person account of of a of a pivotal court case that he was part of. He was also a member of of a number of literary organizations like the Chicago Writers Association, but also the St. Charles Writers Association. And I think I think he uh, he he was. Uh, perhaps with with an Elgin organization as well. And they shared manuscripts and would read each other's manuscripts and critique them and even correct them. So so there's an opportunity. Elizabeth Wetmore, who wrote best-selling book, Valentine, uh, I was speaking with her, but she mentioned this in her opening remarks at Let's Just Write about reading the manuscript aloud so that you can at least hear the syntax and the cadence and the uncomfortableness uh, or smoothness uh, as, as an alternative of, of a sentence and a paragraph and a page and how, and how important those, those things are. I'd like to talk to you about Grammarly and some of the other editing software that's, that's on the market and your cautionary tale about those programs. Absolutely. Um, here's the here's the caution when you use software uh, uh-huh. softwares for editing. Now, yes, whereas I would highly recommend that you use a software program as opposed to nothing at all. Understand that there are limitations that they have. Many softwares, they are simply conditioned to be able to tell you if you spelled a word wrong, for an mm-hmm. example. So the word there, you have three different ways you can do it. T-H-E-R-E, T-H-E-I-R, or T-H-E-Y apostrophe R-E. Mm-hmm. So that if I use, I spell the correct the word correctly, they're not going to flag me. However, it can be used in the wrong context. And so therefore you have used the word wrong, but it won't flag it. And so that's where, that's just one of the instances where um, having a human editor and having those human eyes, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And also they don't always flag when the sentence doesn't make sense. There are times when you're typing and you can type so fast that you skip lines, right? So like, let's say if you have something written down on your notebook and you're going from your notebook and you're typing it and Mm -hmm. so you'll you'll have forgotten an entire line i've seen it done and what happens is you know as again as long as everything is grammatically correct they're not going to pick that up and so there are still going to be some errors um that using the software it won't because it's not programmed to Mm -hmm. do that Mm And so I, I picked these up uh, from a couple of different websites in researching issues with Grammarly. Grammarly software program discovers comma errors with ease, which is very important. I think that a lot of people have 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 an issue with where commas go, how to use them, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the sort of book ending of if you use a comma one in one part of the sentence, you need you probably need to use it 
in another part of the study. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is which is among one of the most typical mistakes. It says here viewed as uh, as a writing trainer, a file which contains sentences with usual grammar mistakes. In addition to student written sentences, this is from the, the writer here, uh, that had errors or negative practices to stay clear of when writing, Grammarly scored a 60% detection rate, which is, I think, very low. Mm -hmm. um, while and, and can can let through a lot of issues in, in a manuscript. While not wonderful, uh, it blew the competitors out of the water, which is kind of scary. Following test score was 30% from pro writing aid, another uh, Grammarly type um, uh, writing software. Uh, software. Yeah. 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 And and that's what's scary um, because even as you, you see that the proficiency is increasing, but yeah. relatively speaking, <laughs> like it, would you, you have to ask yourself, would you want to read a book that was only 60% edit it properly. Yeah, right? yeah, so yeah. If I have a hundred pages and only 60 of those pages are without mistakes. So 40 of those pages have mistakes. And so it really <laughs> would depend to what degree are the mistakes, right? So is it just something as simple as it wasn't properly spaced? Uh, was it something like there versus there, as we were talking about before, or are we missing whole lines here? I mean, like there is a variety, there are a variety of mistakes that um, we could be talking about. And I was saying, even when I was speaking, like not even just in a book, but I've seen obituaries where you can tell mm -hmm. editing work was not done. And so sometimes when you have so much wrong, it becomes a distraction to the point that now I've stopped reading whatever the material is. I've stopped yeah. reading it yeah. to get an understanding. And now I'm just reading it to kind of see how many errors this thing possesses, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Creative writing is how our language or any language and culture exercises itself. And, and having, um, that was another, another issue with Grammarly was that it has a very limited vocabulary. And there's no way uh, with with Word, at least you have that dictionary option where you can click on something and it'll ask you if you want to delete it or it'll give you suggestions or you can add it to your dictionary, which is great in a, in a multicultural landscape if you're using a foreign language or you're, you're using words from from another language that you can you can edit properly and then move forward and then have that not so it doesn't keep cropping up as as a continuous error so command of the language is really really important but we live in a culture in which writing has become lazy you can you can write lazily on facebook and instagram and twitter but in a manuscript absolutely I was saying at the conference how every writer should still use a thesaurus, right? Yes. So other than just good old-fashioned thesaurus, that let's give that as a starting reference, right? Perfect. Uh, I think that in today's day, because everything has become so technologically advanced, we forget about just some of the basic tools that we had. Yeah. And I gave the example of how many times do you see the word just when you're reading mm -hmm. on a page, you know, and you can swap it out for solely or simply yeah. or only, yeah. you know, and, and those things 
things come um, by using a thesaurus. Mm -hmm. And so even if you are not a person who is computer savvy, so you may not know where that function is on Microsoft Word, if you go through, you know, and so uh, one of the exercises that I use is read a paragraph and just highlight how many times did you say the same word in the same yes, time, right? Yes. And so if you see that you've used the same word more than three times on one page, I would definitively say swap it out. If you've used the mm -hmm. same word in more than one paragraph, mm -hmm. then you definitely want to swap it out. So rule of thumb, page that might have three to five paragraphs, you can probably get away with that same word mm -hmm. three times on the page. In the same paragraph, you don't want to have that same word appear more than once. I mean, yeah. it, it's too many words in the English language to repeat a word. And so <laughs> yeah. um, I think that we have to understand that, that the, because here's the thing, I know that there are so many authors nowadays, but once upon a time, the thought behind an author was that you were a wordsmith, was that you, you know, you were a subject matter expert. And so your vocabulary should reflect that, even if it's not who you are mm -hmm. in everyday language, like how you were saying, if we're on social media, there are different uh, platforms for different etiquette. But it should be understood that when I'm speaking in a book, unless that is the language of my character, that mm -hmm. the expectation is a certain level of professionalism, yeah. a certain yeah. level of vocabulary. So that even if your vocabulary is limited, use it the sort. And, and you know this because you published how many books? 18 by the end of this month. It'll be 18. What's, uh, what's the book that's coming out the end of the month? So it is called Being a Black Man, It's Harder Than You Think. And so it is a part of a project. I also had a, cor a corresponding documentary with it that's called The Four Eyes of the Black Man, the eyes referencing um, identity, influence, impact, insecurity, and impact. And mm -hmm. so it's probably one of the projects that I'm the most proud of. So, yeah. Wow. To Neil Jackson, the website is mynameistoneal.com. Thank you so much. You are so welcome, Bill. Thank you anytime. If you missed this year's Let's Just Write conference, you missed a truly comprehensive program. I find myself running back and forth between Eric May's brilliant interactive presentation about memoir writing to a panel discussion on poetry moderated by my guest, Christina Rodriguez, wanting desperately to be in two places at one time. Christina D. Rodriguez is a Latinx poet, entrepreneur, and her poems have appeared in Tupelo Quarterly, Yes, Poetry, Rust Plus Moth, or Rust and Moth, Satin Soul Bits, and elsewhere. She has also had work published in anthologies, War Crimes Against the Uterus, edited by Wide Eyes Publishing as a response to the recent anti-abortion laws, and the She Will Speak series, Gender-Based Violence Anthology, a book that has appeared on the bookshelves of organizations such as End Rape on Campus. Christina has received awards for the Frost Place Conference on Poetry and Winter Tangerines Catalyze Self-Revolutions Workshop. 
Christina was the winner of the 2016 commencement poetry contest and performed at Columbia College's Chicago commencement ceremonies. The website is CROD online at poetlust on, on Instagram and on Twitter at poem underscore lust. Boy, the accolades and awards and things that you've done, particularly with poetry, uh, I could have gone on and on, uh, and then there would be no time to speak. I hope I abbreviated a at least a highlight of some of your very best. I mean, the only thing you could mention is that I am the poetry editor of CWA's Right City Magazine. And I think you just did. There you go. <laughs> Very well. Hey, so I wanted to start with something from Parnesia Jones, one of the poets on the on the panel discussion from from this past weekend, uh, and and she said that she comes from a storytelling tradition, and that feeds her poetry. Well, I can say that for me as a poet, my poetry when I start writing poetry, it's not poetry. Um, I come from a tradition of storytelling. So often what I do is it, it really starts in a narrative form or most of my poetry starts in recording. I talk to myself a lot. So. But poetry allows for me, it allows for you to, to trim it down. And I like that. I like having those, those clean, trimmed down things. You're not like going on and on and on. But it always starts in a different form. And I think that whether you are a poet or whether you're interested in, in writing poetry is you can start from other channels, from other genres. And then, you know, I have stories that I've turned into poems. I have essays that I've turned into poems. And so I think that what I love so much about being a poet is I'm not beholden, really. So I, I love that poetry, I think of, of many of all the genres, actually allows for that sense to, to move about in other genres. I'd like to expand that out. I think we all come from a storytelling tradition many thousands of years ago, but I think it's, it's maybe closer to the surface for blacks who have who have a connection only a few generations back to slavery and people who who come from probably a more recent storytelling tradition am, am i am i sort of close on that yeah as as a latina mm -hmm. we we tell stories in many ways music is one of them so our storytelling definitely comes from from music, of course, there are writers. There, like we, we come from all art disciplines, and just from like being around our, our, our parents, I know that I've heard so many stories. Remember so many stories from my grandmother, and they have going on from the generations. They have mm -hmm. heard their own stories. So I think with storytelling, every single person comes from a storytelling um, because um, we all have history that we need to pass on to others. Mm -hmm. So how does that relate to poetry? Well, with poetry in particular, you could have poems as long as like 10 pages, but most of the time a poem is a page or two. Mm -hmm. So you're telling a story in such a short format and you have to let your reader, well, you don't have to, but your reader ends up seeing a story in such a short span or they get to see part of a story and also sometimes 
we get to have a little bit of not a liberty with the story mm -hmm. but we get to have more of a flair with language mm -hmm. that you wouldn't normally find in fiction and non-fiction and, and there's there's a rhythm to poetry that i think speaks to that earlier storytelling tradition that is that's illustrated probably best right now indigenous societies and 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 african uh african storytelling traditions that still continue to this day and and that has to do with uh with the the rhythm of of work songs of communal work songs where everybody where everybody's doing these arduous tasks and and it's offset by the rhythm and the energy and the excitement and the storytelling but that rhythm i think is is really fully realized in poetry you could say that yes i won't pretend that i know everything about that particular part of history mm -hmm. you know I'm, there are things that i'm still learning and of course there's sensitivities and learning about this as well Indeed. so for myself i do take my time in learning about that but mm -hmm. um, yeah you, you can say that had uh, along with parnisha jones kathleen rooney and tony tragilio uh, my name is tony tragilio and the poem is in the intersection jackson and state without looking i could cross jackson without getting struck guided by voices a hum of tires on coarse pavements. I want to scale one of those slopes, the blushed steel of the CNA building, grab the Monadnox frayed terracotta drapery and climb. Lakeside wind so loud it changes the subject. In dreams, I lie too long on spring grass, pikes still dead despite thaw. Ants crawl my arms, bees swarm. Nature, an antique, an abandoned oak table behind glass, waiting for me to test its legs, barter a price. I'm afraid of nature. Why did you choose those three poets for, for your, uh, your panel? I actually cannot take credit for that. Okay. Samantha actually chose them. We tried to have presenters that are closely knit within the Chicago writing community. Yeah. Um, you don't necessarily have to be from Chicago to be a presenter, but you know, a big part of this is the Chicago writing community. Mm -hmm. So we try to just source presenters and panelists from Chicago. Kathleen Rooney is, is just exceptional. Even from the bottom of a well, you can see stars. Never forget, life is beautiful. You can learn Italian with your computer today. Life is beautiful is your first practice phrase. Life is beautiful and death is part of life. So, when it occurs to you that life is beautiful is your thought bubble filled with girly curly cues? Life is beautiful in the morning, less so in the late afternoon. Creepy crawlies and nasty beasties aside, life is beautiful. Because life is beautiful, most tears are tears of joy. We'll teach you how to stop being so negative since life is beautiful. Repeat to yourself, life is beautiful as many times as necessary. Accept what you get and keep going. Life is beautiful, damn it. Look at the trees, the rocks, the omnipresent birds, the huge ass sky. Everything reminds you life is beautiful. When you finally agree that life is beautiful, you will feel as though you live in a thousand star hotel. They all brought a little something different and unique to the discussion. Could you give us a brief overview of uh, a, a little bit about 
what each of them brought to to the discussion. The understanding that poetry can be more accessible than we think, mm -hmm. starting with ourselves, such as Parnisha had said, poets could start out with writing a persona poem mm -hmm. and other forms of poetry, like Kathleen mentioned, list poetry. Poetry could be so simple, it's just like listing things, mm -hmm. you know, to, to create a story. So they brought that understanding that poetry doesn't have to be um, inaccessible and that so with poetry there's a misunderstanding that we have to understand everything and get everything uh -huh. but that's not true uh -huh. poetry touches who it touches so a poem that someone reads may touch some one person but not the other you know the uh -huh. poems that I love are going to be different from the poems that that you're going to love uh -huh. And they brought that understanding throughout the discussion. I thought it was brilliant, you for, for moderating the panel, but also to Samantha Hoffman for, for getting those three panelists. What would you like people to know about Let's Just Write? I want them to know that everything we do is rooted in the community. We are thinking yeah. of everyone who's a part of the community that we already know. We're thinking about all the people who are to come. The most important thing to the Chicago Writers Association is our members. Mm -hmm. Everything we do is for you guys, including this conference. And we are so happy that we were able to do this. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that everyone had a chance to feel like their writer selves. Do you feel that poetry is a stronger emerging profile in in the Chicago Writers Association Let's Just Write conference? Actually, we come from a more fiction and nonfiction tradition. Mm -hmm. So poetry is something that we touch upon like we have we did have another panel back in 2019 mm -hmm. actually featuring kathleen rooney mm -hmm. um about poetry so we're always touching upon it but you know as long as our members express that they want to learn more about poetry we will bring you the poetry you I, had a pretty I, full I, house yeah <laughs> I, I was really happy with that the room was filled up yeah you know, uh, I, I was literally running back and forth, getting little snippets of, of audio from Eric May, who was talking in the next room about memoir writing, which was a, a brilliant and, and really enthralling presentation uh, and such an important. He'll be in this podcast that's available at the uh, Chicago Writers Association website. I'm a novelist and, and a nonfiction writer but I'm also a closet poet. And I like to think when, when the mood is right, maybe I've had a couple of glasses of wine, that the, the poetry comes a little easier. I'm, I'm also very cognizant in all of my writing about the rhythm of words. And I think mm -hmm. that poetry can feed that imperative that, that, your, that your words sing and have rhythm. Speak to that if, 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 you, if you could. How do I put this into words? <laughs> um, <laughs> I would be very upset if you didn't tell me to prepare a poem. <laughs> uh, we're going we're gonna to get a poem out of you here before we, uh, before we close. So don't you worry. Unlike other poets, uh -huh. um, I am not great at memorizing my work. I wish I was. If there are any poets out there that want to share the secret, <laughs> the rhythm of poetry, it's different for everybody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
everybody has a different cadence. Your own rhythm will come practice. Mm -hmm. I think the most important thing that writers need to know when they are going to attempt poetry is that just get the words down first. Sometimes poetry even sounds very similar to how we would write fiction and nonfiction. Yeah. Then what you work on is looking at what you wrote and seeing how you can say some of the things that you said in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, that's where we have exercises of, of metaphor. You know, think of a different way of saying like, you know, she looked out the window, mm -hmm. you know, find a metaphor for that. It's very hard to, especially in such a short amount of time that we have, to really like get into like how writers, because yeah. I, I keep wanting to say poets, but I forget that not everyone here is a poet, but how other writers who don't write poetry mm -hmm. can find that rhythm and that cadence. That's incredibly important is, is where you start. I have an idea but then I just start writing, writing the words and, and I usually do one or two drafts and then I'm done. Um, but I'm not, but again, I'm, I'm not a poet, but I, I think for the art of poetry, of poetry writing, uh, that's a brilliant way to begin is with the idea and the work. You get them out and then it's like, it's like a lump of clay which is which is essentially all writing anyways you're just kind of whittling down but but it's like a lump of clay and you begin pulling a little off here and changing this and and adding mm -hmm. adding this and then smoothing it all down un until it's exactly the way you want to present it yeah and also what a lot of writers don't realize is that you already have that poetic sense in you mm -hmm. if you're a writer because there are many pieces of fiction, nonfiction that mm -hmm. as you start reading them, they have those elements of poetry that we're often looking for. Mm -hmm. We have the metaphors, we have, you know, images that are told in a different way. You already have it. You just have to bring it out a bit more. And that comes with like different exercises that comes with practicing different forms of poetry. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. comes from reading poetry. Reading poetry is the most important because you will not learn poetry just from writing. You have to read it too. Uh, you're working on a book of poetry yourself. Yes, I am. Did you want to give us a poem? This is actually a poem about... What's the title? Waves. In the harsh light of Brooklyn mirrors, I see a year of grief outlined in my frame. Round cheeks of a week of tequila and Krispy Kreme. The first gray hair hidden in a sea of blackness. Worry lines of my mother's forehead made a transfer to my own. Hips that love still anchors the thought of expansion for children take a swing at my every step. I haven't thought much of myself these days. The moments blur from bed to desk to bus seats along the outer drive. The lake as expansive as the days ahead. In Chicago, I walk onto Loyola's campus to go to church. The rituals don't match. The stained glass Jesus calls my name. We take a moment to breathe. I walk into the empty tomb of all my eternal fears, always sitting by the mother and the son. I apologize to the idea of my father, wondering if I imagine his existence or if being a skeptic is the best form of comfort. I light a candle I never pay for, never prepared for, 
never with a dollar in my pocket. I step out to the campus and the God I do believe in waves. The lake doesn't mind if I stand next to it, quiet and racing. I can't see where it ends and I take comfort in not knowing the end. The website is C-Rod online, also at Poem Lust on Instagram and on Twitter at poem underscore lust. Christina Rodriguez, thank you so much. Thank you. Now is the time to join Chicago Writers Association. It's open to writers and authors anywhere in the world. Unlock a wealth of writer and author resources, programs, and benefits for just $25 per year by visiting chicagorights.org or click on the link in the notes below. Chicago Writers Association membership, by the way, makes a great gift. One of the benefits to becoming a Chicago Writers Association member is the opportunity to attend Let's Just Write, an uncommon writers conference named one of the best conferences in the U.S. by Writer Magazine two years in a row. This year's sold-out conference took place in March. In case you missed this comprehensive two-day event, we thought we'd bring you a few of the voices and presenters from this year's Let's Just Write conference including poetry panel moderator Christina Rodriguez, associate professor of creative writing Eric Charles May on writing memoirs, to Neil Jackson, editing is not an option, and author, poet, and conference attendee Leah Grover. Storytelling traditions were part of the conversation earlier with Christina Rodriguez. In our modern era, it can be a simple thing to forget that we all come from a common storytelling tradition. Perhaps no better example of the continuation of that grand human storytelling tradition lives in the words and experiences of the memoir. Once the purview of the famous, wealthy, and powerful, a world of experiences illuminate a democratization of history through the eyes of the everyday person, such as the diary of Anne Frank, Philip Caputo's Vietnam epic, A Rumor of War, Deb Sheasley Tokar's ICU Copper, How a Simple Biochemical Imbalance Was Misdiagnosed as Mental Illness, or Scar Dance by William Mansfield. The memoir has become a lifeline for many, helping others find comfort and connection. Writer and poet Leah Grover attended this year's Let's Just Write conference I caught up with her after the conference to get her thoughts. I could have sat down beside any of the hundreds of people that attended that first day at Let's Just Write. Uh, as fate would have it, I sat beside you. And I learned a little bit of your story and your journey. Before we get into that, I'd love your impressions of the Let's Just Write conference. It's my favorite conference. Um, I've been going to writing conferences for 10 to 12 years. And for the most part, they tend to be very industry sort of focused and industry heavy. Uh -huh. You know, they'll be targeted for a specific demographic of writers or a specific market of writers. And they, they tend to rarely touch much on craft. They're mostly about marketing and trends in publishing and uh, specifically agenting up. 
you know, they, they tend to be very focused on that. And what I love so much about the Just Right conference is that you can do that. You know, they have the, the sessions where you can you can focus on your marketing and your platform building and your publishing goals. But there's also sort of a, a craft track and you can spend you can spend both days sort of getting a, a, a micro MFA and it's it's really refreshing and invigorating helps sort of recharge the whole process and gives you a real chance to connect with other writers about craft as opposed to about business and i think that's a really important distinction in in the conferences because you can go to a conference you can network your butt off you can learn how to hone in on your market but it doesn't necessarily make your writing any better is there anything before before we move on more specifically to to your projects and what you're working on is there anything that you would like to see at future conferences that was maybe missing at this conference more coffee yeah <laughs> <laughs> just hot liquid and vaguely caffeinated all right just to just to keep your motor revving yeah you know it can be it can be quite draining it's two very long days yeah and, uh, and particularly if you're going to liquor everybody up the first evening that second day can kind of drag <laughs> so uh, i i missed the liquor part of it <laughs> it was optional it was optional uh -huh. but uh but plentiful so yeah that that two days and particularly if you're going to do it in heels coffee uh -huh. helps okay Excellent. Excellent. So Professor Eric Charles May gave an interactive presentation on writing memoirs, especially which I thought was a profound take was where to begin and how to begin. What was your takeaway from from that particular presentation? I thought that was a fantastic session. Opening is, I agree, the hardest part. It's not just the fact of sitting down and writing a book, you know, is is harder when you're facing it on a blank screen. But also just knowing where your story starts is such a tremendous challenge in mm -hmm. memoir. And I mean, almost in anywhere, but in memoir in particular, because you're you're isolating single elements of uh, of your lived experiences. And that can be a tremendous challenge. But on top of that, if you mess up your beginning, nobody's going to care how you did in your middle or end because they're not going to get that far. True. Do you think, and I, I've published a memoir, do you think, I'd love your take on, do you think it's more difficult to write a memoir, particularly a, an extraordinarily emotional memoir like you're working on? Would you would you like to tell people a little bit about what you're working on? Uh, well, right now I'm at work on my second memoir. It's related to the first in that my, my first memoir is about my husband's diagnosis and experience with um, glioblastoma. It's a, the most aggressive form of brain cancer. And how his very unusual experience with brain cancer helped me to understand my own experience with mental illness, mm -hmm. uh, both of which we learned to live with as the chronic invisible diseases of the brain. Yeah. Uh, one of which was seen as being very legitimate and real, and the other which was seen as being uh, behavioral and general dissatisfaction rather than a legitimate illness. The second memoir, my, my current work in progress, is about his death. He died in January of last year at the, the end of the first year of the pandemic, and uh, we went through the process of his end of life over the course of about 
nine months in this COVID bubble mm -hmm. where we were extremely isolated, me and our three young children. And what we what we did sort of coming out of that was take an 11,000 mile road trip to scatter his ashes around the country over, over the course of the summer. So the current work in progress is about grief and how we addressed death and dying with our children, how we processed those experiences and emotions, and then the trip itself and the experiences of, of physically doing grief. What's the name of your first book? It's gone through a couple. Right now, um, I've recently parted ways with my my agent who was shopping it out. Uh, okay. She had a, an offer she couldn't refuse from the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama and had to move on. <laughs> that's, so, that, um, that's some big competition. Yeah, I can't falter at all. I have uh, no hard feelings. Let, let's just hope her karma holds. I'm sure it will. She's a wonderful person. <laughs> I wish her only the best. It's, it's working title right now is when and always. The current work in progress has has no functional title as yet, okay. although I've been referring referring to it as Mike's Ashes. You can find all about it if you hashtag Mike's Ashes on Instagram. Okay, okay. We'll uh, we'll get that uh, that link from you and then we'll post it in the links below for, for people to, to follow you. Thank uh, you. If, I, I'm trying to be very, very sensitive about about this presentation because it, it's a very emotional subject for you but I, but I think an incredibly important subject that people need to commiserate and share over we all face loss we all face loss and we all faced a certain amount of isolation and confusion when it came yes. to, to the to the COVID pandemic yeah. and so it, it touches very much both on uh, the universality of death and grief and dying mm -hmm. um the the universality of losing a parent and of of whether or not losing a partner the the fear of losing a partner yeah. um yeah. but it also touches very much on the the universality of of that pandemic experience mm -hmm. i believe there are going to be a lot of memoirs that will be extremely popular um about that year about 2020 and particularly about the way that otherwise normal experiences became yeah. very unusual yeah. and so this this sort of falls into that umbrella as well because uh most of the standard things one does when one is dying or that one does when a loved one has died weren't weren't really options for us you know when you go to if if, if you were to know for instance that your sibling or uh, best friend was entering hospice care you'd head over and, and say goodbye but that wasn't exactly the kind of thing most people could do yeah and uh, uh and then just you know not being able to hug you know it's the sort of thing that that you you take for granted until suddenly you really really need to and it isn't it isn't a possibility which brings me back to that earlier question of of which is harder writing writing fiction or even uh, even writing or writing a memoir because the reason i say that is i've i've worked with a lot of veterans and and coached some some veterans ahead of their their memoir i've been through combat so so i understand a lot of the moral and ethical transgressions that happen i see the situation that that you're in in that very same light, there's a lot of emotional and moral and ethical minefields that you need to navigate through carefully while still offering that rich, deep insight that will connect and help other people or even build a community around you, the author. Speak to that a little bit, if you wouldn't mind. I think that there are really different challenges with fiction and memoir 
Yeah. I think if you'll excuse the metaphor, it's like a painting with a limited palette to write a memoir. You know, you narrow it down to a few colors. You say, this is this is it, and this is what I'm working with. And as a result, you know, the canvas you end up with is, is more harmonious. Those colors, they all, they all blend. They come together in a much more natural way, but you're, you've already chopped off half of the spectrum. You know, you're, you're working with, with less mm -hmm. and working with less for some people, for me in particular, um, I find that it helps narrow my focus. And so in a lot of ways, writing memoir as opposed to fiction, it's, it's focusing, it's that limiting aspect to it clarifies. Whereas when you're working in fiction and you hit a hard spot, rather than having to go to the tools that you have to to, to sort of iron through it to, to work out the problems mm -hmm. you can change and oh. there's no distance between uh between you and a memoir there's very little distance between yourself mm -hmm. and a memoir mm -hmm. um i think the more distance you give it the less opportunity for for emotional connection you have mm -hmm. but there are times when it's essential you know you can't bring people into the absolute heart of of every every trauma without just causing harm you have to know when to give your readers some distance so that they can they can process things you have to know when to give them that space to just be an observer mm -hmm. instead of pushing them through all those moments with you mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the same is true of fiction but when you maintain that distance yeah. and you lose your connection you can't just say I'm going to shift the whole thing into third person and <laughs> leave it leave it there. You know, the third person memoir is a uh, is a really difficult thing to achieve. Are you finding that there's a therapeutic aspect of memoir writing that the sort of distance in seeing the words and the experiences and thoughts and emotions is is an aid to processing grief and loss, or does so it churn it all up? It's a little, it's a little of both, okay. you know, it depends, it depends on the, the distance from, from the subject for sure. Yeah. What I found in the course of putting together a first draft mm -hmm. is that a first draft can be extremely therapeutic. It's once you have to sit down and look at it critically and say, is this how I want other people to feel sharing that experience? Is this the best way? to inflict feelings upon people, to inspire yeah, feelings yeah. from people, to have to go back to your own story mm -hmm. that may have been extremely therapeutic to tell initially and look at it objectively and say, this part of the story that is important to me mm -hmm. is not important in the terms of this story. This thing, you know, killing your darlings is hard in fiction when your darlings are lived experiences and people yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's it's a lot more of a, a personal process not only to say to people in your life who mm -hmm. you care about you know your presence in my book is is not welcome today but mm -hmm. also to say to yourself that whole existential crisis that you had this is not a plot line that people care about this is this is not a story that contributes to your overall message yeah. you can just worry about that issue for yourself and uh and and keep it keep it private and um and then knowing knowing the difference as well between what should be private because it is not of interest <laughs> to the reader and not of use to the story as well as what should be kept private because 
you're dealing with real living people yeah. who may have to live with the consequences of your words as well. Your uh, your website. So my, my Instagram is leah.grover. I'm also at leahgrover.com. My blog is actually on the Chicago Now Network, and it's it's rarely updated because I've been focusing so so hard on, on writing elsewhere. But I do tend to, to microblog predominantly on Instagram. If you follow, there's a couple of hashtags that are tied to it. Grieving with intention will bring you to most of my content. But uh, Mike's Ashes hashtag, that will also bring you to, to most of this road trip content. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was 11,000 miles in a minivan with three kids. If you'd like to hear my full conversation with Leah Grover, visit theplaytimeplaycast.podbean.com. Next up, part of my conversation with Eric Charles May, Associate Professor of Fiction Writing at Columbia College. Professor May talks about his presentation, How to Get Meaningful Memoir Material, from this year's Let's Just Write Conference. Eric Charles May is an associate professor in the fiction writing program at Columbia College in Chicago. Professor May is a Chicago native and former reporter for the Washington Post. His work has appeared in Fish Stories F and the Chicago Tribune, to name just a few, as well as the personal essay anthology, and I so love this title, and I want it on a t-shirt, Briefly Knocked Unconscious by a Low Flying Duck. There, there, there seems to be a marketing synergy or, or a, a marketing event waiting to happen there. Yeah, well, you should tell the folks, I'll, I'll tell the folks a second story, because uh, that's the anthology. That's, those are the folks who published the anthology. The 2022 Let's Just Write conference hosted by the Chicago Writers Association, breath, breath, breath. Eric was a presenter of How to Get Meaningful Memoir Material. Bedrock Faith is Eric's first novel. His website is ericcharlesmay.com, and we'll link to that in the notes below. And after all that, I suppose it, it would be rather, rather silly, Eric, if you weren't here. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, buddy. And, and thanks for having me. It's wonderful that, that you're joining us. And we spoke at the conference a little bit, and so I know you're, you're getting Zoomed out with the COVID Zoom culture. I mean, it was a blessing and a curse, you know, yeah, it was a yeah. blessing in the fact that it allowed us to deliver an ed educational experience to our students. We would yeah. not have been able to do it. Would have been a lost uh, year. Without Zoom. However, it was really, you know, and for the students more than for me, actually. I mean, I only had to do, you know, three classes a week, maybe occasionally at faculty meetings. The students were sometimes on Zoom for six hours or more in a day. Let's talk about your book, Bedrock Faith. And I have an angle here that pertains to memoir writing, but give listeners a brief synopsis of, of the book, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, well, my novel is uh, Bedrock Faith is about a guy who is terrorizing his neighbors with the word of God. Uh, a guy gets out of prison after 14 years, moves back in with his widow mom, and his stayed middle-class African-American neighbors were quite worried because he was quite the terror before he uh, uh, went away. However, they find very quickly that he has had a religious conversion while in prison, which turns out to be a real problem because he sets himself up as the sort of moral judge and jury of the neighborhood and starts getting into it with one neighbor on his block after another on religious grounds. Each encounter with the neighbor having a more serious uh, ending 
mm-hmm. and, until finally that some of the neighbors start to retaliate. And that ramps things up even further until there is, uh, as I put it, uh, a tragic and irrevocable event. In Bedrock Faith, we are taken to the fictional neighborhood of Parkland on the on Chicago's far south side. Not kind of maybe specifically patterned after the neighborhood that you grew up in, in Morgan Park. Yes, I grew up, for the most of my time in Morgan Park, my family lived on 111th place in Racine, which is about, oh, about half a mile west of Halsted. Mm-hmm and maybe a mile or so east of Western Avenue. How much of the detail in shops and businesses that you describe in the novel, I, I'm guessing that they're, they're based on real places and people that you knew growing up in Morgan Park, yeah? Well, they're, they're based on the kinds of places okay. that okay. I knew. The neighborhood where I lived had a lot of private small businesses. Mm-hmm. There was a drugstore on 111th and Troop, and it was a small drugstore and it had a little pharmacy in the back. Uh-huh. The pharmacist was African-American, owned by, you know, it was an African-American drugstore. It had a soda fountain and everything. If I yeah. first. So, and, and the reason I brought that up is it sounds like bedrock faith. And I, I know you took a little bit of issue with this um, in our conversation before the introduction, that bedrock faith is a kind of a fictionalized memoir, maybe a, a hybrid between fiction and memoir. Or, or does well, that just help you as, as an author to anchor? Yeah, I mean, I mean as, a, as a fiction writer, yeah. you know, a lot of fiction writers wind up drawing profoundly on the worlds uh, sure. that, that produce them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, Faulkner was from central Mississippi, where well, guess where most of his novels are set. Toni Morrison was from Lorraine, Ohio, well, guess where her first novel is set. And <laughs> And even in her second and third novel, Sula and Song of Solomon are set in towns very much like Lorraine. That's not all that unheard of uh, for authors to do that. It's not like I take issue with the idea of it being a memoir-esque or autobiographical. It's just that memoir to me is very kind of specific where you're telling particular kinds of stories about this is what happened to me. Mm -hmm. Or an autobiographical fiction is very much... My uh, understanding of it, if I were to define it, Mm -hmm. would be, you know, you're drawing very much on a particular situation or series of events Mm -hmm. that actually happen. And you take something like Bastard Out of Carolina by Dorothy Allison, uh, in which uh, it's narrated by a a girl who is subsequently later on in the novel uh, sexually assaulted by her stepdad. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what happened to Dorothy Allison. Mm-hmm. That would be something you might call autobiographical. Does a memoir have to be fully fact-checked and 100% accurate? You know, the agreement you're making with the reader is mm-hmm. that this is true. No, I don't know anybody who, who necessarily fact-checks a memoir. However, in getting to what you were talking about just now, if you're doing a memoir that deals with some sort of historical event, well then yeah, you better make sure uh, that what you're putting in there is is accurate because I can guarantee you someone eyeballs are gonna be looking at it and saying, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, this didn't happen. Somebody who was at your presentation that Let's Just Write, Leah Grover is her name, is writing a memoir about the the passing of her husband yeah. uh, from from cancer. I I'd say probably the the fact checking, unless maybe there's there's a medical a medical issue or a medical verbiage, 
it is probably not so imperative. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, imperative in the sense that there's probably not going to be anybody who's going to be able to counter you on it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In other yeah. words, if it's if it's private issues, you know, you know, who's going to be able to call you up and say, no, 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 it didn't happen like that. Yeah. But that still does not relieve you, the author, <laughs> of trying <laughs> just because you. Just because you're saying to yourself, well, no one can really check me on this, uh, doesn't mean you, the author, aren't still trying to make it as accurate as you can. Mm -hmm. And also, sometimes our memories can be fuzzy. Mm -hmm. And we can honestly think something happened on a certain date or in a certain place, and then it didn't. It's never a bad idea to, you know, ask around, ask around the family, ask around your friends, you know, to see, is, is this actually how it happened? Now, sometimes you can't do that because what you're writing about is probably maybe something that said relative or friend would not be happy about you writing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if that's the case, well, yeah. then, you know, you just have to go, well, all right, if, I'm not going to If I could interrupt you there, because you brought up two really important points to memoir writing. Uh, the first is uh, memories. And so I, I want to I ask you how you flush out memories and details. Is it copious amounts of notes? Is it sketches? Is it music? You brought up a, a number of uh, a number of exercises in your presentation on Saturday. I, you know, I try to rely on what do I see. Yeah. You know, when I when I think of something that has happened to me in the past, you know, when I think about it, well, what's my what's my image mm -hmm. of, of it uh, that I have in in my head? Because a lot of times, I think this is true for most people. Yeah. We, we're, we're, we're carrying around a whole treasure trove of imagery yeah. in our head when we think, oh, well, uh, and, that, and, we, and that when we think of things like our old neighborhood, our high school, jobs we worked at, we don't necessarily see a narrative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, this event happening and then this event happening and this event happening. Sometimes we do with certain stories, but a lot of times what we actually are seeing is kind of like an image, images that have stayed in our heads for some reason. And, and why this is, why some images and, and like I say, little memory clips stay in our heads and others don't, who knows? You know, Virginia Woolf says, you know, why do we remember how the light and shadow played on the bushes on the way to the beach and not the day at the beach itself? We, it's just in that kind of, unusually wonderful way our minds with memory work. And so that when we think back on things, oftentimes that's what we're actually seeing. We're not necessarily always seeing. How do they, how do they avoid embellishing? Or is that a potential tool in telling in telling the story embellish in what way pies as big as as big as the sky or yeah, you know, you know some, something like yeah, that yeah yeah i mean you know every time we are sitting around a table with folks and we're telling stories about stuff that happened to us in our past that's mm -hmm. never what we do assume is that the person telling us the story unless you're talking about a cultural thing where embellishing the truth is part of the understanding of this mm -hmm. is this is how we tell stories to each other and there mm -hmm. are cultures in which embellishing the story is perfectly okay because embellishing the story is kind of what is is, is, is expected mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like usually in american culture it's like somebody tells you about this 
this car accident they were in when they were, you know, 16 or somebody yeah. terrible, something that happened to them on their job. Our assumption is, is that the essence of what we're getting here is the truth. There's kind of this, uh, this agreement between this understanding and most readers are okay with that. I wanted to talk about, I wrote and published a memoir about my experiences in a war. Leah Grover, who I mentioned, is writing a very personal story, the passing of her husband, but that involves other people and other family members. But in, in war and in the passing of a loved one, there are all kinds of emotions and moral transgressions and ethical issues, yeah. people not presenting themselves in their best light at unguarded and weak moments. How do you tell their story as part of that larger narrative, even if you know that they're not going to come out looking good in, in, a, in a moment? Well, that depends on how important it is, is it to you to yeah. have that in the story. I mean, yeah, a memoir yeah, yeah. does not mean you have to tell everything. Yeah. Uh, I remember when uh, Beverly Donofrio came to Columbia and she had wrote the memoir, Writing in Cars with Boys. Mm -hmm. And she mm -hmm. says, there are things about my mother I'm not putting in any memoir. That's up to the memorist. The memorist can uh, put in what they want to put in and leave out what they want to leave out. It, it kind of it depends on how important it is to have this in the story. You know, some memorists are, are like, you know, I'm going to tell the unvarnished, I'm going to tell everything. And let the, uh, let the chips the, fall where they may. Fall where they may. Yeah. And other memorists say, you know, I'm not going to destroy a relationship that's important to me. Yeah. To put something in a book that is, you know, that is not going to bother the reader because the reader's not going to know about it anyway. And and just like, you know, I'll go back to that thing of when we're sitting around telling stories to each other. We don't tell our friends every freaking thing. Yeah. Uh, there's all kinds of things about ourselves, about our relatives, about our lovers that we are we are, do not tell yeah. to a group of people. And, but that doesn't mean that what we do tell is somehow not legitimate because we didn't tell this other stuff. Uh -huh. Or that uh -huh. what we do tell is is less true. Now it may be it may leave out some context, but that doesn't mean that the story itself is not is not true. You're not being true yeah. to the story. Yeah. But and but then even then to ask yourself, but if it did change how they would view it, does that matter? Yeah. And again, that's up to only the only the only author of the memoir can make that decision. Nobody can make that decision for you. At the end of the day, it's got to be you know mm -hmm. you deciding uh, to do it. You know, sometimes people will put stuff out there because they find out that you know somebody else is digging. Yeah. And that this is going to come out. And so they want to be at least get the first take yeah. on how something is is, is is viewed. But that's oftentimes with famous people. It's not necessarily with, you know. In, in the presentation, you offered several examples of how and where uh, critically acclaimed authors began their memoirs, which I, I thought was was absolutely brilliant. Should it be a part of every writer's process and research to read as much of other writers in their genre, in, in this case, memoirs? I, I would say and it, that's, that's true in the case of anything okay. you're writing. Okay. If you want to write memoirs, read memoirs. If you want to uh, write detective fiction, read detective fiction. If you want to write nonfiction about uh, relationships with animals, read nonfiction about relationships with animals. 
uh, and so on and so on and because so on. There's, because there's patterns and rhythms to, to well, each of just, those genres. It's just yeah? what an artist does. You know, yeah, it's a yeah. uh, 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 comparison I, I use is it's like not reading what you want to write. It's like someone saying, I want to be a film director, but I don't really want to watch movies. Or someone saying, I want to be a jazz pianist, but I don't want to listen to Jelly Roll Morton or Thelonious <laughs> Monk or Mary Lou Williams or Mary McPartland or Bill Evans or Keith yeah. Jarrett. You know, I don't want to listen to anybody or Oscar Peterson. I don't want to listen to Art Tatum. I don't listen to anybody playing jazz piano. <laughs> I just want to, you know, give me some tips. On how I can play jazz piano, and then I'll just go. I'll just go from there. There you go. There you Eric go. Charles May is an associate professor in the creative writing program at Columbia College in Chicago, and the author of the novel Bedrock Faith. The oh, one last thing. Yes, uh, and it was named One Book One Chicago. I was just about to say that. You, oh, good. You, you you beat me to it, but I'm just going to repeat it because I kind of talked over you there. Bedrock Faith, the 2021 One Book, One Chicago selection by the Chicago Public Library. Great minds think alike, <laughs> buddy. And a 2014 <laughs> notable African-American title by Publishers Weekly. His website is ericcharlesmay.com. Do I get college credit for this? <laughs> Eric, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been great. You've been listening to Chicago Writes, a podcast of the Chicago Writers Association. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. Links to our featured guests are in the notes below, as well as links to the Chicago Writers Association. Until next time. Support this podcast by simply clicking the subscribe button to receive notification about all of our upcoming episodes, upcoming events, and programs from the Chicago Writers Association, chicagorights.org. Our theme song, Midnight Ride, is courtesy of Dino Lovchich. Find Dino's music on YouTube and on Spotify. Spotify.